Welcome back to another episode of More Than a Hospital. Let's go back 16 and a bit years as of this recording to a time just after my double lung transplant at Harefield Hospital. I had loads of questions about what comes next. What was my life going to be like now? How different would things really be? Would I be able to do all of the things I'd dreamed of doing? That period immediately after a transplant is an exciting time, but it's also uncertain in a lot of ways. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who thinks that either. To find out whether or not that was true, I sat down with a man whose own life-saving heart transplant had happened just a few months before. This is community. This is specialist. This is collaboration. This is more than. This is more than. This is more than. This is more than a hospital. With me, your host, Ollie Lurington. Krishna Patel spent the end of 2022 and almost all of 2023 as an inpatient at Harefield Hospital. Having led a normal life for almost 40 years, he found himself diagnosed with a serious heart condition in early 2022 before being listed for a transplant that summer. It was a life-changing moment for Krishna, who had to put his newly established business ventures on hold, and also for his new wife, who had to move closer to the hospital, extending her commute by hours. Krishna is now a well-known face around Harefield, a result of his relentless enthusiasm for connecting with people. It's hard to walk a hallway with him without being stopped by someone he befriended during his stay. He's also deeply dedicated to pushing for change where it's needed most, volunteering to support everything from information days to taste-testing new menu options for patient meals. In this episode, I spoke to Krishna about the difficulties of spending more than a year in hospital, the impact that staff can have on mental as well as physical health, and how hard it is to maintain a sponsored silence on a busy ward. Krishna, you probably know more about Harefield than almost any other patient, don't you? Yeah, I think so. I was here for a year, so I got admitted October 29th, uh, 2022, sorry, a day I'll never forget. Um, and I spent just over a year in the hospital and everything literally changed for me there that day. Um, it's really funny because most of the people I met on my ward, they were getting wheeled in on a bed or a chair I walked in carrying two bags and um, Dr. Drew, um, great doctor, who's a fellow who's been at the hospital 15 years, saw me and said, who are you coming to see? And I said, oh, nobody, I'm a patient. He smiled at me and he goes, oh, your room's here. So I wasn't as ill as most people. And then straight away, I was like, you know what? My situation isn't so bad, especially when I got to meet more and more people and realise what they actually do at the hospital. Because look, I, I didn't know what nurses do day to day. I know a nurse takes care of a patient, but how involved they are or how involved a doctor is, even though, which is really funny because my wife is actually a doctor herself. So most of our friends are in the healthcare space and my brother's a pharmacist. So we know a lot of people in the medical field, but when you see it hands on, it was just different for me. It just changed a lot, a hell of a lot. So did you know you were getting admitted? Yeah. So it was January 3rd, 2022. I had um, I had a cardiac arrest at home. So it's my left side. I didn't know what was going on. Basically, I just started sweating. 
Then I had a little bit of heartburn and I thought I'll get some Remy's, you know, the red tablets. So I was going to go downstairs. I couldn't make it downstairs, went to the bathroom, vomited. And apparently that's a sign. Cleaned it up, sat down. I was still sweating. And for some reason, I called 111. I don't know why. I just did it. And there was a young lady on the phone. She asked me all these questions and she goes, where are you now? And I said, I'm upstairs. She goes, okay, get your coat, get your phone charger, go downstairs. I said, why? And she goes, because I think you're having a cardiac arrest. And then I stood up, I panicked and I was like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. So I went downstairs five minutes later, an ambulance was at my house, which is really quick because then we were living in central London, Elephant and Castle. So I wasn't far from the hospital, which was Guys and St. Thomas's, which is associated with this trust. They got me to the hospital and within five minutes, they were like, yeah, we need to put two stents in you. So I didn't know what stents or anything was. This is in my head. So I was like, I'm going to be home today. So they kept asking me, they're like, do you have a, a wife or a girlfriend? I wasn't married then. And I said, oh, I'll have a girlfriend. And they go, oh, we're going to call her. I said, no, 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 I've got to leave it. She's got exams. And they said, what does she do? I said, oh, she's a doctor. And the nurse said to me, she goes, I'm definitely calling her. I said, no, 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 leave it. I'll be fine. They put me under. They put the two stents in. But then we had the stuff beforehand. Nobody could get, um, nobody could put a, um, a line in me because apparently I'm very hard to bleed. So I had a nurse, a junior nurse, a nurse, a sister. Then they called the doctor and then a consultant. So eventually they got the line in me. They put the um, stents in me. They woke me up and it was the same nurse that was looking after me. She just grabbed my thumb, unlocked my phone and said, what's your girlfriend's name? Called her. And then I realized when my girlfriend turned up how serious it was. The next day, there was a consultant. He was probably about my age, really smart guy. He came and spoke to me. He said, has anybody spoken to you? I said, no. And he goes, do you know what's happened? I said, well, all I know is that I had a cardiac arrest, but I think I'm fine now. He shut the curtain. He goes, you're not fine. He goes, if you would have left it a day, he goes, what were you going to do? And I said, I was going to stay at home. I was going to rest. And then I would have left it a day. He goes, you wouldn't have been able to make that call because you would have been dead. And that's when it hit me. So I stayed in the hospital for about two weeks. I went home. Um, so we only lived public transport about 10 minutes away from the hospital. So not, not so far. Got home. Um, I was fine. I went to see my parents. Then I had fluid build up around my gut. So most people get it around their ankles or their chest. For me, it was my stomach. I just looked like I was having a baby or something. Um, I went to uh, guys in St. Thomas's. They got rid of the fluid. Then they put an ICD in me. Um, then I went home and then my consultant at Guys in St. Thomas's was a guy called Andy De Silva. Great guy. Probably we're exactly the same age. He asked for my case. He asked for my case because we were the same age, like very similar lifestyles. And he couldn't understand how this had happened to me because we have no family history of like cardiac arrest or anything. Um, and he used to work here at Harefield. Um, so he referred me to Harefield and he actually helped me a lot. The way he described things and explained things, like I don't know anything about medicine, but he simplified everything for me so I could understand it. Um, and then, yeah, I got referred in July. I met um, Dr. Dar, Star, great guy, senior consultant. He's amazing. I don't know if you got to meet him, but he's, he's a great, great guy. Um, they did these tests on me and then he sat me down and he's like, okay, I've got news. He goes, you've got three options. I said, okay, what are the three options? He goes, you can stay on the tablets, but we don't know how long you're going to live. He goes, I think about 12 to 18 months, but he goes, realistically, it's probably 12. He goes, you can have an LVAD, but that's just a short-term fix, or you can have a transplant. And he goes, if you don't do any of these, he goes, you will die. 
and that hit me. But I, the way I take on information like that is I won't panic. I won't cry because to me, like that doesn't resolve anything. So I took it in. I was like, okay, I'll have the transplant. And then I forgot my girlfriend was in the car waiting. So when I told her, it was a completely different, it was a different story. And obviously she's a doctor, right? So she knows the ins and outs of it all. And um, yeah, she didn't take it that well. And there, there's a couple of my friends that I know very, very well that are doctors that cried in front of me. And I've never, ever like, unless it's their wedding day or the birth of their children, like I've never seen them cry. Um, yeah, and then I got referred. And then, yeah, October was when they called me in. And that was when my journey began. So why did you have to be admitted while you were waiting for a transplant? So I was on uh, one because they said they needed to monitor me all the time. And two, I was on meds for like 24 hours a day. Um, so I had this bag which I'd carry around. Apparently, I was the first person to do that instead of pushing a pole around. So I used to put the meds in my bag that was connected to me, that was feeding through my arm. But yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd do that and they, they couldn't. And in case a heart came up as well. And I lived too far away to just drive in and drive out. Um, plus, they said as well that I needed to be monitored all the time. So I couldn't go home. And that's like all of us. Like I'd preferred to have been home. And maybe things would have been better, but it's probably better to be here because in total, I had like three shouts. When you talk about getting a shout, what what is that? So you wake up one day, like a normal day, you start your exercise and then a transplant coordinator will come in and say, oh, are you busy? And I was like, no, I'm not. And then they'll say, okay, we've got a heart for you, a potential heart, sorry. So they're very careful with their words. So they'll tell you that they've got a heart from wherever part of the country and that the consultant's gone to see the heart, they've done the checks and they'll bring it to the hospital. They'll do further checks. Then they prepare you. Preparing you means like cleaning yourself, shaving yourself, getting yourself into a gown. If the heart's good to go and you're good to go, then you go down for surgery. Or in my case, twice on two consecutive days, it was a no. Two consecutive days? Yeah. So the first day was our anniversary. Wow. And we're like, oh, it's destiny. It's meant to happen. And it didn't. <laughs> and then uh, the second day, it happened the day after. We're like, okay, it's going to happen. And it didn't happen again. So the first time they said there was some damage to the heart. And I waited nine hours. So no eating, no nothing from the day before as well. But do you know what? I kind of expected it. So like me, my expectations weren't so high. As with my wife, I think she just wanted me home. Um, so it was a bit disappointing. Then the second time it happened... I was like, you know what? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And then within like three hours, they're like, it's a no. They go, the heart's too, it, it's, it's ruined. Like you cannot have it. And then it was months and months go by. And then September 23rd, it happened. And I remember um, my coordinator coming to the room and telling me, and I didn't think much of it. So I went back my day, drank a bit of water. And then she kept coming and saying, okay, it's looking good. It's looking good. It's looking good. And it got to about 6 p.m. And she goes, you know what? You need to have a shower and shave yourself. And I did that. 20 minutes later, they've got me on the bed and they're taking me downstairs. So I'm saying bye to everybody. And then we get down to the surgery ward and I couldn't look at my wife because I knew if I looked, because she had tears coming down her face. And I'm not that emotion, but emotional, but if I see somebody crying, I don't want to see somebody crying. It set me off. So I was just looking forward, looking forward. Said bye. Um, and I remember, is it the anaesthetist that put you to sleep? Yeah, yeah, that's they right. They were talking to me. And... I think they put the injection. I was gone, gone. Eight hours later or nine hours later, I was awake. Um, they took the tube out of my mouth and I met the surgeon and um, 
he just, he's a really great guy. Like, do you know when you meet people that just got electric energy and it just transfers over to you? Um, he just said, hello. And I was like, hello. He goes, you know what happened? I said, no idea. He goes, oh, we gave you a new heart. Do you want to see the scar? I said, no. Um, and then he's looking, he's going, okay, good job, good job. He goes, I'm going to come and see you tomorrow. And I remember my parents being in the room. So I asked my parents, I go, what did they say? They said, well, you were awake and you were asleep and you're saying you're grateful for being alive. And my sister-in-law was pregnant at the time. So they just had their baby in November. And whenever she'd come to the hospital, she'd let me touch her stomach. And all, all I remember, I don't remember much, but I remember this. I put my hand on her stomach and the baby started kicking, um, which was good. Um, apparently I was talking sense. I don't remember much. It was only the next day I woke up and I was like, you know what? I'm really hungry. I'm really, really hungry and I'm really thirsty. And they're like, what do you want? I said, I want orange juice. So I got this orange juice, you know, the little cartons they give you in the hospital. So I peeled it back, I drunk it and I necked it really quickly. And I was like, ah, oh, that's really good. It's really cold. 10 seconds later, it came back up. And I said, that's going to happen because obviously your body's getting used to your, you having fluids and things in yourself again. A few minutes later, the physio comes and says, how are you feeling? I said, fine. And I really felt fine. And they said, okay, we're going to walk. I said, okay. And I just thought, this is normal. Like, this is what they do with everybody. Um, so they got me up, walked around ITU, got back to my bed, sat down. I was knackered. I was really tired. And I said, that's normal. That's going to happen. And I just thought this is normal. And they kept doing it and doing it and doing it until eventually they took me back to my ward. I think the whole thing, the hardest thing of the whole surgery wasn't the surgery or even like the walking or the exercise. It was being in ITU because ITU is a big Big open ward, right? It's a scary place yeah. to you, isn't it? And I have massive respect for the doctors and nurses that, that that work there. Like you have one patient, one nurse, one patient, one nurse. And all I remember on the on the left side of me, there's an Irish guy, older guy, probably in his 50s, was in pain, a lot of pain. Just kept saying it hurts, it hurts, and hurts. And I remember saying to the nurse, I said, give him painkillers, give him my painkillers. I was like, he was just, do you know when you just, it was too much. And then I remember opposite me, there's a young lady, she's only about 15 or 16, that passed away. And you hear all of this because you can hear the family screaming and all this. I didn't like it. And then the sisters from Rowan, because I, I know everybody on Rowan and Fertry because they were my, my wards. They came to see me and they said, how are you feeling? I said, I feel good. They said, should we take you back home? Because that's what they called it afterwards, home, right? So they took me back to the ward and I was just so grateful. And I was just, yeah, I think that ITU... It was hard. It was very difficult because I've got friends that were there for like a month. And I just, I don't know how they did it. I know they were in a coma and stuff, but still you can hear everything coming through. But it was hard. But my nurses that looked after me, like they do everything for you. Like they're bathing you. They're cleaning you up after you go to the bathroom. They're doing all your meds and everything else. And they do the same on Rowan and Fertry as well. But here it's just constant, constant, constant. ITU is a really overwhelming place because there's just so much going on all the time and it's such a contrast to the wards and particularly I think Rowan and Fertree because you have your own room it's a very private kind of space and you frequently go hours and hours without seeing people and so you kind of got your own little bubble that you can exist in in whatever way you want to, but ITU, you have no respite from it. it. It's kind of constant. And I was really lucky because the first time, so when I had my transplant, I woke up 
back on, or I first remember back on Rome Ward. Um, and I had no idea that I'd even been in ITU. And then a couple of weeks later, I ended up back onto ITU and spent a couple of days there because I'd gone into renal failure, which was wow. completely, completely unexpected, obviously, but all kinds of random things were going on. I was back on ITU. I woke up with the breathing tube in still in, which was really scary. And then you're just kind of in this space that is suddenly so busy, so noisy. And I had the exact same experience as you, that the person across from me died. And it was sort of the middle of the night. And I, I didn't really sleep on the ward anyway. Yeah. But there was like a constant stream of family members coming, some kind of very stoic, some in tears. And you just kind of, I was hazing in and out because of the, the amount of painkillers I was on. But it's a, such a strange and overwhelming place. I, th I think you're right. I think when you say you had a private space on Rowan and Fertree, yeah, it was private, but I was very social on the ward. So I did art. I discovered my love of art, which I never had before. Um, I was never that creative, but I discovered that I was. Um, I raised money for the hospital. Um, I got involved as much as I could, going around speaking to people. They said that I was like the welcoming committee here. You were talking there, you mentioned that you did some fundraising as well while you were here. You did a sponsored silence, I think. So the, the, the thing that I'm interested in with a sponsored silence is, first of all, you're clearly a really social guy and you like going around and talking to people. And secondly, you're in a hospital where sometimes things go wrong. So did you, was, I mean, it feels like it must have been a really big thing for you. Yeah, so originally the idea was 24 hours. And I was like, you know what? I'll do 48 hours. Big mistake. Big mistake. Not talking for 24 hours. It was hard enough, but two days was is hard. And um, it's really funny because I was silent. And I was thinking, how do I get around things? So I picked a day where I knew I didn't have any procedures or anything. And people just had to come and do your bloods and things like that. Um, so I had a piece of paper, a notebook with a pen. So I'd write things down. Um... And then some of the nurses were coming in my room and they would be silent. And I was writing down, you don't need to be silent. And they're like, oh, okay, now we get it. But yeah, it's hard. I think I raised in total three and a half grand, which was doubled to seven because there was an initiative. And that was for the Royal Brompton and Harefield charity, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love that charity. They're great people. They do great work. Um, and I was happy to raise that kind of money. Would I do a silence again? Nope. Never. It's too hard. Too hard. And I think as well, people were just doing it. So I'd shut up. Um, for like two days, but yeah, it was difficult. It was really difficult. And am I right in thinking it was for the patient fund? Yeah, it was for the patient fund. So I didn't know what it would be for. I just thought it was a charity and they said I was for the patient fund, which meant more to me because obviously I was a patient as well, right? And I see what everybody goes through. So if you can raise some money just to get some more books, some more games, I don't know, to do some more activities, that was helpful. But my time on Rowan and Fertree was great. Like the nurses become like your family because you've got nobody else and they can only understand and your life becomes the four walls of the hospital. Um, but I tried to keep things as normal as possible. And also just trying to find a passion because I knew life would be different when I got out, right? 
you can't run at a million miles an hour like you were doing before. You've got to like adapt and get ready and embrace your new heart and your new world. And also like getting used to the fact that somebody else's organ is in your body. Yeah, it's, so I, I think there's two different things there, aren't there? There's the dying part and then there's the, the organ part. The thing that used to wind me up is people used to call me brave when I was waiting for my transplant. It's like, it's not brave. There's nothing brave about just living. Like, I'm, I, I have, <laughs> there's nothing else I can do. I have no other options. I know I'm dying. I know my lungs are failing me. That's not brave that's living the life that i've got i think the the bit about the the organ and having different organs inside you that's a completely different it's a completely different mindset i think and it and it does take some getting used to as much as you know that it's coming that you know that that's the entire point that you will hopefully get someone else's organs getting used to the fact that that has actually happened is really difficult yeah i I agree with you the brave thing because i said to one of the consultants they said you're being brave i said well i'm not really it's just my life and i'm sitting in a nice ensuite room getting fed free food and like not do much and she goes what do you mean i said brave is being a single mother with three kids being homeless and trying to feed them that's brave I go, what I'm doing is just, I'm just living my life. Like, it's not perfect, but it is what it is. You know what I mean? And I'm being looked after. I think with the organ thing, I got over that really quickly because for me, it was, they give you that form, right? To fill in. Is there stuff you wouldn't have? I ticked it all. I was like, I'll have anything. I'll have a cow, a sheep, whatever. It's fine. As long as it works. Um, For me, the one thing I knew was I didn't want to die. Like I just literally got married in the August and I was in hospital in the October. So I had what, three months of being married. And then our first year of marriage was me in a hospital bed. And it's not really the first, like, that's not how you want to spend your first year of marriage. And now I'm out and we've moved to this new house, beautiful house in uh, Ickenham, which is literally down the road from Elephant and Castle. So it's two different vibes. You've got Elephant and Castle, which is very city. And I know everybody in that area. And then you've got Ickenham, which is a very quiet village. And, you know, your biggest problem is who's the person next to you that's just moved in. Um, and it's very nice and it's very quaint and stuff. And it was a new home. So when I came home, my wife said that you're being weird. She goes, you're acting like it's my flat and you don't live here. And I said, but I've got to adapt. I've got to adapt and get used to things like everything's just different. And I have now, but it was like, I don't want to say imposter syndrome, but it was just trying to get used to it. it. took me a good month to get used to it. It's an alien environment, isn't it? Massively. And and Massively. the fact that your wife had to move when you were still an impatient, it does give you that vibe. Yeah, of course it does. That, that it's not your place. It's it's a place that that is it's kind of homely in as much as it's the the same sort of environment I would imagine to to what you were used to but it's a different place and and I mean you move anywhere when you've been living somewhere for a year or more 
any way you move is going to feel weird. And if the other person's had time to get used to it, then it's going to be weirder for you than it is for them. Yeah. I think it's funny because she packed everything. As in literally, I told her to hire somebody to take the bed and stuff down. She did it all herself. I was really impressed. I never told her that, but I was really impressed. Um, and then she moved in, she put everything together. She made it very, very homely. And even like some of my artwork and stuff that I gave to her, she put it up and I got there and I was just sitting there and I was like, this is weird. I was like, there's no, like in Elephant and Castle, you can imagine it, right? Sirens all the time, kids running around. It's a bit loud, there's people running. Even when I went back after my initial MI, I had people constantly knocking on the door, asking if I was all right, if I needed anything. Here, quiet, like really quiet. But the good thing about where we live, people know the hospital. So my pharmacy, the lady that works for him, she worked here actually, she started off at Harefield. So they know about the hospital and stuff, and know about your condition and it's really nice. It's just, it's very different, right? So I've always lived in cities. Like I haven't lived at home since I was about 17 years old. And I think for me as well, I made a lot of friends in the hospital. So not just patients, but staff as well. Like they said to me after I had my operation in ITU, they've never had a patient have visitors like I have. Like I had one of the guys that does the cleaning. He was feeding me my lunch one day. Like a really, really nice guy, an older man. And he came to see me. Um, yeah. And I've just, I don't know, like they said that I was very popular. Even now when I come here, like I can't go like two steps without somebody saying hello, which is great. It's a great, great feeling. Um, and I always thought like I'd come back and volunteer because my thing was I wouldn't come and volunteer and do a class. I think patients need to speak to somebody that's been through it rather than a psychologist. Does that make sense? So somebody that's been through it, that's been here the long haul and understand what it's like and understands how they feel because it can become a very lonely place because your partner, your friends, they talk to you and they say, oh, we understand, but they don't. They really don't. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't want them to understand. I never want anybody to go through what I went through or what you went through, but they'll never understand. And when I spoke to patients that had been through it, I was like, yeah, I go, you get it. You made a really interesting point there. You were talking about one of the, the cleaning staff coming and, and feeding you lunch. And there is something really unique about the community at Harefield being the experience that I've had and that you've had, but I think right across the Royal Brompton and Harefield hospitals, there is a really unique community feel to it, yeah. isn't there? Yeah. I think for me, like, I've been in business by myself since I was, what, 27? I judge nobody and I'll speak to everybody. And that was my attitude here. Like, you're a doctor, you're a nurse, you're a HCA, you're a cleaner, you give us our dinner, like... The, the, the staff that serve you at dinner, you have to be good friends with them because they give you extra, right? That, that was my whole thing. And they're, they're actually nice people. And a couple of the cleaning staff are very interesting. Is in like, one guy I met, an Asian guy, older guy, I used to call him uncle. He used to work at Heathrow. His son owns bars in Marbella. And he goes, if you're ever in Marbella, he goes, he goes send an email and I'll tell him you're coming. There's another lady here that works here as a housekeeper. Her husband owns a restaurant near where I live. Like just mad little things and like some of the stuff you learn about these people, it's just interesting and you realise like all these things and all these people help the hospital go around. They help them go around. There's no there's no real real hierarchy. I've never seen anybody speak down to anybody. Everybody's just the same. So for me, it'd always be the same. Like I met patients that were rude to staff and I never liked that. 
You don't need to be rude to somebody that's trying to save your life and calling them names. Like, there's just no need for it. I, just, I don't get it. I was like, these, I get, like, you're messed up because you're going through this experience and stuff. But at the end of the day, like, the one thing you can control is your emotions, right? That's what I believe, anyway. I think as long as you get control of your emotions and everything will come. And I believe the nurses here, as well as they nurse you, they're like counsellors, like mini psychologists. Like, I spent hours speaking to nurses, hours, and I mean hours, just speaking to nurses. And it'd start off on my mental health, then it'd be about like, right by my wife for her birthday or Christmas or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, it's very easy for people to see staff as just the people that work in a hospital and they do their jobs and and some of their jobs are great and they're noble and that's wonderful and i think too many people stop at that point and they don't get that these people actually make an enormous difference when we talk about the patient experience it's often seen as a a sort of corporate thing of you know making sure that patients are happy with the bed that they're sitting in and the food that they're eating and actually the patient experience is about the people that surround them every day and when you spend a long time on a hospital ward or under the care of a hospital the people who you see every single day they they help inform your mood when I was on the ward, there were two HCAs who came into my room every morning to change my bed and kind of generally clean and tidy a little bit around because I was really messy. <laughs> but um, they came in every morning and they were so friendly and so chatty and they were so adept at reading my mood and knowing what I needed whether it was a, a kick up the butt or an arm around the shoulder or just some some laughs and jokes and that set me up every single day for what the quality of my day was going to be like and that it, it's so difficult to describe to people how important that is and I know that it's something that that you feel particularly strongly about because you're you're looking at at setting up a charity that that is all around raising the profile of what healthcare workers do yeah I, th I think for me that whole thing started during covid so like i said my brother's a healthcare worker this is before i met my wife he's a healthcare worker he's a pharmacist a couple of our friends are occupational nurses and then nurses and one of our friends got really ill during COVID. She was off for three months. The day she got better, she went back. And that was the day Boris announced he wasn't giving the nurses pay rises, but she still went in. And I was like, imagine, like, I've worked in jobs where I just don't need to go in. Like, I won't. I'll just say I'm sick. But she can't even say she's sick because her colleagues need her. And she cares that much that she just went in. And I was just like... And then I talked to her more and more and more. And she goes, oh, it's a normal thing. We're used to be asked for the pay rise. We don't get it. And I was like, how can somebody, and this is not meant as any disrespect, but I'm not going to mention the name of a business. You got some businesses where they just do a normal job and they get paid more than healthcare workers. And you're telling me a healthcare worker has been told, keep him or her alive or them or whatever it is, keep them alive. 
and you only get this much. And they're not appreciated for what they're doing. And even when they were protesting out here, like you've got people going past them saying you should be ashamed. And I was like, that's disgusting. You don't know what they do on a daily basis. You don't know when they have to deal with dead bodies and then still be smiling around us. Like imagine that like a lot of these nurses are a lot younger than me and they're just dealing with it, dealing with it, dealing with it, dealing with it. And also they know more about my case than most of the doctors and the doctors lean on them for information. There's a, there's a massive respect between the doctors and the nurses here. And I never realized that until I was here and you've got the consultants, very senior consultants speaking to the nurses. I was like, bloody hell. I, was like, I didn't realize that they do this much. And like the intellect it takes and also like the social care, the social responsibility of not just medically being trained, but psychologically as well. And the thing is that the, the psychological stuff, it's not even training. It's, it's something that just seems to be almost innate among the staff at, at Harefield that there is this recognition that you can you can do the job that you're told to do and that you're trained to do and you can be effective and efficient in doing it but actually if you don't add that psychological element to it it's really hard to get the best possible patient outcomes so what's what is it that you're trying to achieve with the charity it goes back right like what you said like the psychological aspect it's just them and i think People that work for the NHS, they really care. Like, I care about things, but I've never cared this much like they do. Like, really, really, really care. And even me, like, my business, like, I've been in, like, tech, med tech. I have a recruitment company that does sales marketing, but we've done some stuff in medicine as well. So even when I was, like, speaking to them and they ask about jobs abroad, because we do a lot in, like, New Zealand, America, overseas, because they love NHS nurses and they get paid really well. And you tell the nurse, and they're like, no, I'd never leave the NHS. I'd never leave. And that to me is just like, wow. Like you really care? Like maybe it's just me. I'm just a bad person. If somebody's offering me hundred grand a year, I'm going, I'm gone, I'm there. But I think when you get people like that, that really care, like something needs to be said and something needs to be done. For me, the charity is going to be called 25. 25 because that was the rate my heart was working at. And then obviously it declined, 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 declined as it went on. Um, so the number's really significant for me. Um, but it's about raising awareness for nurses, HCAs, doctors about what they actually do because... You wouldn't know. Like, I didn't know. And my wife's a doctor. My brother's a healthcare worker. Like, our friends are all healthcare workers. And I didn't know, like, they do this, 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 and this, and this, and this. And they do it all with a smile on their faces. They just care. And even I got sepsis. So I, I was walking around in the afternoon. It was really hot. Went back to my room. I passed out. I woke up and I was sweating. I was absolutely sweating and then I was shivering. So my nurse, Billy, she's amazing. Um, she came in. First thing she's doing, she's like, okay, I think you've got sepsis. I need to take bloods. They couldn't get bloods out of me because all my veins had gone. They're completely shot. Um, but the care that they showed me that day, amazing. Like they do it every day, but I was really ill. The next day I was fine. And then a the few days later, I refused to go down to, um, to Rowan because they wanted somebody to take more care of me. And then my one nurse, Neve, she's an Irish girl. She's really nice. She's very direct with me because she knows the way I am. She goes, okay, I'm in charge today. You're going downstairs. And I was like, okay. So I went downstairs and amazing. Like I hadn't been on Rowan because Rowan's a HD usage, high dependency. Uh, and the nursing down there was amazing. I had my own nurse. My room was massive. My TV was good. I had a big window. Um, I made really good friends with the kitchen staff there. So they used to give me a big meal as well. The care in the staff is amazing. And I just think 
they don't get enough credit for what they do. So just finally, I want to, I want to focus in a little bit more on the, I guess the smaller goals that, that you've got, the more personal ones that you have, having now had your transplant facing this new life that you've been given. For me, I always said, if I, if I get six months of a, of a different quality of life after my transplant, I'm, I'm absolutely fine with that. I just want the opportunity to, to go and play in the garden with my godson, which is something I haven't been able to do for years by this point. That was all I wanted. Do you have those kind of just smaller personal little things that actually most people wouldn't wouldn't even give a thought to? Yeah, I think that's interesting you say about the godson. So my brother and his wife just had a baby, um, and my sisters, my sorry, my wife's sister had a baby as well. And the first time I met her, I was in hospital. I was in hospital. And now she's a year old, just over a year. Um, so spending time with the kids, both kids, sets of kids. I've got nieces and nephews. The other thing is as well, is to go abroad. I've never been abroad with my wife, ever. Like we met, I got ill, couldn't go anywhere. We did like Cornwall, Edinburgh and stuff like that, but we've never been abroad. And then I think for us, it's just about building a normal life, whatever normal looks like now. And like she's taken care of me for so long, I think it's about time I actually become a husband <laughs> rather than just you know, a patient. But yeah, and I think like, I've got a lot of bigger goals as well. Like I'm going to start my own podcast. I'm going to go back to doing content. Um, I want to work, but I'm not going to do what put me in hospital in the first place. Like I'm a really ambitious guy and I like working hard and I love what I do, but I'm not going to do it to the point where I'll give myself another heart attack. My dad actually had a stroke in November my dad is like, he's a made man himself. Like he came from me from India in 1979, married my mom very quickly because that was the days of arranged marriages. Right. And then he worked and then he built this business up. And now he had this stroke and the doctors are saying to us, you can put him in a home. And we're like, we're not going to put him in a home because he worked this hard. So he doesn't have to work anymore. And now you're telling us to put him in a hospital. We're not going to do that. So for me, it's about spending time with family. And I never realized like, I'm not, I'm not like, I love my family, but I don't spend that much time. I spend a lot of time with my brother and my sister-in-law because they're here. Uh, but just spending time, a lot more time with my mum and my dad and my sister and just my niece and nephews. I think that's what's important. I think with money, like you know, it comes and it goes. It is what it is. It's there and it's not. But I think with family, that's what really matters. And I know I'm saying that now, but I really, really do mean it. I even thought about it at Christmas and I was like, you know what? It doesn't really matter. Nothing else matters because we have everything. I think the most important thing, like, like you, is family and trying to be a husband. Krishna, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Ali. Thanks for having me. It's been exceptional. I really enjoyed talking to Krishna today. You really get a sense of his passion for this hospital and for the people who work here. And I think what was most wonderful for me to hear is that 16 years on from my own transplant the patient experience is really no different that the people are just as passionate 
they're just as dedicated to making sure that they're providing the best possible care in every possible sense. And that community feeling and the level of teamwork and, and I guess integration between all of the different departments and people, it's still there and it still works and it still makes such a difference to patients when they're coming at probably the hardest time in their lives and what could be a horrible experience they manage to make somehow a bearable one. I hope you enjoyed listening. I hope you got as much from listening to Krishna talk as I did. And I hope that you'll come back for our next episode on More Than a Hospital.